Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, Paul Theroux. Theroux is an iconic writer of over 50 books of fiction and nonfiction. Most of his work takes the form of travel writing, a genre he has helped define for the 20th and 21st century as he traveled alone to some of the most remote parts of the world, writing about them with sensitivity, insight, wit, and wonder. He was a global citizen long before such a term existed. It was his 1975 travelogue, The Great Railway Bazaar, which recounted his passage by train from London to Southeast Asia by way of the Middle East and India, and back again on the Trans-Siberian Railway, which brought him to international prominence. In 1986, his novel The Mosquito Coast was adapted for a film starring Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren and was adapted again for Apple TV this year. His most recent book is the 2021 novel Under the Wave at Waimea. In this lecture from 1994, Theroux talks about the role of travel writing and how it differs from journalism. And he describes how great novels are imprinted with the author's worldview and offer us a timestamp of a given place at a specific time. This last note struck me as resonant with this show itself in the way it reveals authors at a particular moment in their career in the context of a particular time. Here's the room. Thank you very much. I'm here to, to talk about the enigma of travel and also to mention my novel. Fortunately, they have a certain amount in common. Robert Louis Stevenson said, there is a sense, of course, in which all true books are books of travel. And he was writing about uh, Whitman, but he might have been writing about uh, Herman Melville, or he could have been writing about the Mosquito Coast, I hope, or Milroy the Magician, because the, that, that sense of landscape, which he's talking about um, in true books, he says all true, all true books, uh, that, that's, that ought to be the case that a book ought to have a strong sense of place. Um, I'm often asked what, uh, about how I reconcile being a travel writer with being a novelist. Actually, I started out being a writer of fiction, short stories and, and novels. And it, it's very easy, actually, to reconcile both. I didn't think that even when I joined the Peace Corps in 1963 and went to Africa, I didn't think that I would come back and write a book about Africa, I, which I suppose someone might think of now. The natural thing was to go to Africa and write a novel uh, or to write poetry, but it wasn't to, uh, to bring back a documentary, even though at the time um, Africa was becoming independent and in the 60s, what you see in South Africa now, which is a white minority caving in to the black majority and also and, and finally acknowledging that there should be one man, one vote, 
That sort of thing was very, very common in the early and mid-60s as countries like Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, Zambia, and so forth, uh, earlier in, in Ghana and Nigeria became independent. Uh, what's happening in South Africa now is just like then, although it's 30 years later. Um, V.S. Pritchett said, there are no new sights. There are only new ways of seeing. I like that because it means that you can send someone. It really it's depend on, 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 it depends on the character of the writer. But you can send someone to the Taj Mahal or the pyramids of Egypt or to Vatican City or to Machu Picchu. And depending on the character of the person that you're sending or the person who's writing about it, you will get a different book. People say, oh, another book about Africa or another book about South America. Um, I published a book last year about traveling through the Pacific, called a book called The Happy Isles of Oceania. Some of you might have read it. There are many books about the Pacific, lots and lots of them. Uh, they take in different parts of the They might be Polynesia uh, or uh, Australasia or whatever. Mine, I saw the Pacific as, a, uh, as something like a universe with a little galaxies and planets and whatnot. And, and that it's like outer space composed entirely of water and that a plane was like a rocket ship that took you from one little planet to another little planet. Even the, when you're in a small plane in the Pacific, you're traveling from... You can't even see where you're landing until the very last minute. You look down, you see there's a little dot of land and which you arrive at. And although the Pacific has been written about um, ever since it was discovered in the 18th century by Europe and seen to be a place of uh, nobility and free love and uh, happiness. Uh, it's been written about in different ways. First, as it's like uh, the land before the fall, before original sin. And then as a place that needed to be saved because the missionaries went there uh, very, very soon after Captain Cook and Bougainville, and they converted it uh, urged people to, put, to wear clothes in Hawaii to stop doing the hula. And in other places uh, where people were suspected of cannibalism, according to where these people went, they wrote what they sought. Every person had his or her own version of what these places were like. As I say, some of them saw the Pacific as paradise, some saw it as a place that needed uh, conversion or needed um, liberation. So, the, uh, and that's true of, of, of most places that they're perceived as um, as places that that need outside help. I was thinking, I was actually talking to a, a friend of mine today, journalist, and we were talking about food generally because food is a subject of my novel. And I was thinking, how isn't it interesting that we as Americans, very well fed, pretty robust, pretty you know. Uh, chunky on the whole, who see, uh, you know, who, uh, when you go to an American house, un uh, unlike a lot of other places, they say, are you hungry? Would you like something to eat? Uh, you look hungry, wouldn't you? You know, I've just made this cake. Would you want some food? And uh, that's a very, very hospitable thing to do in, in, uh, in underdeveloped countries, in folk societies. Feeding someone is a very, is a great peacemaking gesture. And I was thinking how we often see our role in the world partly as peacemakers, but often as feeders of the world. That 
feed the world. Would you want something to eat? You know, the world isn't starving. It's not, um, people, uh, people in third world countries are not necessarily malnourished or starving. They're unsafe. They have, uh, they live in unsafe societies, but they're not all hungry. They even have, many of them have much better diets than we have, but we see ourselves, uh, 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 that, that feeding them is the thing. And it's because perhaps we eat so much that we, that we see that, that they should eat as much as we do. We think they're awfully skinny, people say, but it's a well-known fact that, that, uh, that you don't have to eat a lot to, uh, to live. In fact, the people who eat <laughs> the least live the longest. So I'm not belittling the idea of malnutrition. It exists in many countries. But there are, uh, 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 that, that food exists as a, food is the helping hand. Feed them. Feed them. Send them food. Are they in trouble? Send them food. Uh, and, and of course, food aid is, generally speaking, it's, it's, it's not much use because when you feed people, um, they just, they're not growing their own food. They need more food. So you send them more food. So they become very dependent. But that's the very thing that, uh, that happens in a family. You feed your family. They go away. They come back and say, will you feed us again? You feed them again. And they go back and, they, and they, and, you, and they come home, and when your children come home, you say, you look hungry, and you sit down. And so there's a kind of um, paternalistic element, or maternal element in food aid. Again, I'm not uh, belittling it. Don't think, I'm not ridiculing the fact. I'm just saying that it's, it's strange that we should be doing this, that we, chunky people, should be sending it to skinny people. But I started by saying that, that, that uh, all... Um, that, that there are no new sites. Sometimes people say, oh, you're writing, another, uh, you're writing a book about, even when I was writing about the Pacific, you're writing a, a book about the Pacific. And, and, and this person said, but isn't there a book about the Pacific? Yes, of course there is. <laughs> how many biographies are there of Shakespeare? Or how many biographies of, you know, some simple soul? How many biographies of, um, what was I looking at the other day? There were a lot of biographies. Um, I think it was Truman. And, uh, no, I'll tell you who it was. I'll tell you who it was. I lie. It was, it was MacArthur. Interestingly, I should confuse Truman with MacArthur, but <laughs> it was, it was General MacArthur. And I didn't have the wit to, uh, to mention this as other person, but why shouldn't there be another book about the Pacific if there are 20 biographies of, of MacArthur? Since travel is a kind of biography of, of a place, or at least it's a, it's a version of, it's a portrait of a place. Why shouldn't there be, you know, as many books about a place as there are people to write about it? Because a book is not about a place as much as it is about the person writing about the place. Um, I have this other quotation from th this, by the way, what I'm telling you is, is more or less the, the, the fruit of picking up this book. I was traveling um, in Sardinia not too long ago, and I picked up this book. Uh, of Robert Louis Stevenson's travel writings, something that uh, I had read before, but never very, very deeply. And I realized that Stevenson said a lot of things, you know, 100 years ago, or very nearly 100 years ago, or no, perhaps a bit more than 100 years, because he died 100 years ago, but uh, so 110 years ago, that um, resonate uh, today. Uh, his friend Sidney Colvin said the interest of a book depends a book of travels depends in all cases on the character of the traveler much more than on the extent of his travels and the most trivial journey related by one man will be better worth reading than the most perilous exploration and hair breadth escapes of another 
do, does that make sense to you that, that it really depends on who's writing it and that you might have some heroic thing being have the, the assault, uh, an assault on uh, Kanchenjunga or um, you know, climbing the north face of the Aiga, but not particularly interesting. Whereas there's a, there's a book by a man called Xavier de Maistre written in the early 18th century called A Journey Around My Room. A Journey Around My Room. And it's quite an amazing travel book. Actually, Bruce Chatwin introduced me to this book. And I said, you must be joking. He said, yeah, a journey around my room. And, and it's an amazingly interesting book. He finds a hairbrush here, and then he goes over and he finds something there in a chair. And he describes each object in a spirit of discovery. You know, Henry David Thoreau said, when he was asked if he traveled, he said, yes, I have traveled. I've traveled much in Concord, Massachusetts. I've traveled much in Concord. And it, it sounds like a, a kind of faintly pompous thing to say, but you think that, well, in a, in a small place, there's a lot to see. And it really depends on how it's written about. Um, Walden is an amazing book, which is couched in terms of travel or residence, let's say, in an unusual place. It's like a book about colonization, how you live, what you eat, what you see, the bird life, and then the meditations. But he was only a few miles from his house in his cabin in the woods. So there's that aspect to it, which is that anyone can do it. It depends on the character of the person. It's not the trip. It's not, um, it's not how dangerous, how perilous the trip is, as Sidney Colvin says. It's entirely the success or failure of the book, or let's say the achievement of the book, is to do with the character of the person. Jen Morris is an amazing person with an amazing style of writing. She's, I, in my view one of the best descriptive writers alive. She can describe anything. She can describe the, the look of a Byzantine church, the smell of an onion, the, uh, the landscape. She can describe uh, the, how Australia was colonized, how Aborigines were hunted down. Absolutely wonderful and resourceful, very well read and, um, and extremely readable. In her hands, uh, the visit almost anywhere, is, is, is worth reading. Um, and I think probably she's a classic example. I would use her as an example rather than myself uh, for, for what I'm discussing, the, of the enigmatic nature of travel. Because travel as a, as a form has a, really, in the past 20 or 25 years, has had a kind of resurgence of, uh, resurgence of, of, of interest I think, personally, it's to do with uh, the rise of the pa- package tours, is that people got sick of traveling on the beaten path of, uh, of package tours, which is, has probably something to do with the fact that um, uh, 20 years ago or so, jumbo jets began flying, and people were traveling in very, very large numbers, which they weren't before. I remember the first jumbo jet arriving in uh, Singapore. I saw it. And it, 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 it looked like something from outer space. I'd never seen anything so big and, or so many people getting off at night. And I thought, how are they ever going to do it? How, all those suitcases, all those people, how are they going to process it? But of course, uh, airports expanded to, to meet the needs of, of the jumbo. More people began to travel. Hotels began to be built in huge numbers. And then this explosion of travel had its resonating effect on people like me, and I'm sure you, who said, I don't want to do it that way. I'd rather do it some other way, or I want to read about something else. I don't want to read about all these people traveling like in, 
uh, en masse. I want to read about one person with an APSAC or one person who's not um, with this group of people. In other words, a way of seeing which is not the way that everybody else was, was seeing it. At one time in the 19th century, the Grand Tour was the way that uh, Europeans were introduced, the English people anyway, were introduced to, uh, to the continent, and Americans too, of just seeing particular sites, Switzerland um, and uh, you know, Italy and Greece and so The classical world, and that was written about. But even that could have been written about by someone of, of a, the Jan Morris, um, with Jan Morris's descriptive powers. So I think, as I said, that, that, that the, uh, the, the travel book began to change. I think it, it was after the, uh, the Second World War, perhaps much later. I think of it as perhaps in the 60s that it, that it changed. And that, uh, that it had a lot to do with the influence of people, they call them hippies, but whatever, uh, who were actually blazing trails of their own, but not writing about it. That uh, when, when I first set off on my travels, I think I could say that it was in 63, uh, when I joined the Peace Corps in Africa, and then later um, uh, traveled in Southeast Asia, also in the 60s and um, early 70s, that, the, that there were certain landmark places that had been established by people who were just vagabonds, people who were going from place to place, living cheaply, budget travelers, as they're known today. And uh, there were no maps, there were no guidebooks, there was no way to get uh, to these places, no no description of them, but that there was a kind of word of mouth. And that those of us who traveled in the 60s to these places, and they had very, very specific locations. There, uh, There were certain places in Turkey, in Iran, in Afghanistan, take the town of Herat in Afghanistan, in the western part of Afghanistan, which is over the border from Meshed. Meshed is a holy city. We all knew that. And that uh, the, the idea was to get to Meshed not on a Friday when people were praying, to get there during the week and get out of there fast, and then get to Herat. Herat is mentioned by Alexander the Great, by Tamburlaine, by all the, you know, the tremendous, the classical travelers. It's... It, you may know it merely because it was conquered by the Russians, you know, just a few years ago because they were shelling it. But actually, it's an ancient city on uh, on the major road to India. Alexander was in India. But uh, that was known, Herat in Afghanistan, was known mainly to what you might call hippies or beatniks or whatever, but, but just people who are uh, on the bus from Meshed, and that was in the, uh, the time of the, of the Shah. So all of this was, um, was it was known to, uh, the, the, let's say it was known in a kind of, there was a kind of oral tradition or verbal uh, way of, 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 of knowing about this, the route from Europe, which went through Istanbul, to India, which ended up in, in Nepal. Why, you might say, why Nepal? Why of all places Nepal? Curiously, because the first Peace Corps group ever, ever, in 1961 or 62, I actually think it was 62, uh, was Nepal. It was the Nepal One group. And that when the, the first Americans got to Nepal, that was the most highly motivated um, and most productive 
and um, the morale was the uh, was was the greatest. But this small group of people pioneered the uh, the hippie trail because the, the the Nepal group of Peace Corps volunteers, when they when they finished, went to India and then went back to uh, Europe. Similarly. Um, Australians had started in the early 60s to go to England, and they, the cheapest way to get to England was to go from Australia to India and then go overland from India to, to London. Uh, and so and they, there, was a, there was a route that pioneered from India uh, across Pakistan. Uh, Nepal was, was part of it. The people went from Pune to, to Kathmandu and then back, and then through Amritsar, through Pakistan, up the Khyber Pass to Kabul, from Kabul to Kandahar, Kandahar to Herat, to Meshed, to Tehran, to Tabriz, to Lake Van, across Turkey, to Istanbul, up through Bulgaria, and then through um, Yugoslavia, what used to be Yugoslavia, and then to, to Europe. And it was a straight shot. It just took a lot of time. It was interesting, it was fairly safe, but it was you know up there... Now, uh, and so I took it a bit later. When I say a straight shot, it was just, it, there was a road. There was a, actually a, a way of going. It was like, you know, Route 66 up from Madras to London. That was written about, that was written about uh, many, many times, both by people who took the trip going east and going west. There were, uh, the first you probably know about the Lonely Planet Guides. The first Lonely Planet Guide was the guide along that route. And I, I, I can't give you the date of it, but I think it was probably in the early 70s. And uh, so that was one of the, f- the first, if we, we, we're talking about um, the, the golden age of travel books, not the one in the 30s, people say, when the going was good, the Evelyn War, Graham Greene, Peter Fleming, um, those Sort of where they're very stylish, snobbish, um, colorful natives, etc. Type, but but after that, I think post-war travel books of the 60s and 70s, I think that was the route that people took. And of course, there was one in South America too, which is uh, what you might call the Inca Trail. So it, it but it depended on the character who of the people who were going. Um, the, the 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 quality of the book depended on the the character of the people uh, that were going. I find that interesting because. When I took it in 1973, and uh, from the, the winter of 73 and 74, I encountered a number of difficulties. But they weren't the difficulties that anyone would encounter today. The, uh, the, I, went, I had a very, very easy time going, I remember, from Venice to Istanbul. Nowadays, it would be a nightmare, because I went through what's now uh, Croatia, Serbia, and Bosnia. At that time, it was just a somewhat backward-looking place where they had steam trains, but the people were all dressed you know, in a kind of respectable, uh, dowdy way, going to work. Uh, I remember commuting on steam trains, and I, and I remember picking their way in, on the, these various places through the train yards, because that's all I saw. I never stopped. I, just, I went straight through in a very, very, on very slow train very anxious not to get their shoes dirty or their clothes dirty because they were going to work or coming home from work. And it, it seemed to be a place that was rising, slowly but rising. I didn't realize, none of us, I suppose, who were unfamiliar with it, realized how, the ethnic tensions. I then went to, through Turkey, 
Bulgaria, and then Turkey, and then Iran, then Afghanistan, and so forth. But if you just if you talk about the difference between going through Iran and Afghanistan now, there's an enormous dif- difference, and the difficulties I don't, are great. I don't know whether anyone would venture through I- Iran at this moment, or Afghanistan for that matter. Afghanistan, a week or so, about 10 days ago, was being shelled, and, and there were, uh, people had vacated the houses. It was being shelled by a group of Mujahideen. Uh, similarly, Burma and uh, Vietnam, where I went, are different. Uh, China is different. The Soviet Union, I went from uh, Nakhodka to Moscow and then, and then beyond, is different. So you could even say that not only does it depend on the character of the person writing the book, but from year to year, maybe even from month to month, a travel book could be written about a particular journey. And that the journey that I took then, 20 years ago, is totally different now. Not according to, you know, who writes it, of course, is a different journey, but also those countries are different. I frankly found it, um, I think that travelers discover things that camera crews don't discover and that diplomats don't discover and that uh, journalists even don't discover, merely because a traveler is traveling on the ground. He's always uh, jostling with people. People are telling the traveler things all the time. I say he, he or she, depending on who the traveler is. And that, that the traveler often finds things out in a, uh, in a very sort of clumsy, hit-or-miss way that other people miss. If, when you see CNN and see a, uh, a report on a particular place, the shot is being set up. People go by in a car. There's a lot of equipment. There are five or six people with sound equipment and cameras, and um, they get someone to be interviewed. But when you're traveling, a, a normal traveler is traveling with nothing, not even with, a, uh, with anything obvious, not with a tape recorder, not with a pencil, not with a pen, with, with a piece of paper, obvious. And people are always murmuring and talking and, um, and telling them. When I was in China in 1986 and 87, there were riots all over China in the winter of 86, and uh, the winter of 86, 87, in about nine cities. But they weren't covered by, uh, by journalists. They weren't, they weren't on television. They weren't maybe, <laughs> they weren't, the people weren't in the particular uh, places when they needed to be. Maybe CNN was somewhere else, Afghanistan or somewhere, but they, they weren't in that part of China. And to a very large extent, the riot, the student demonstrations and the student riots of 86 and 87 went unnoticed, except by me. And um, I think, because when I published my book, people said, he doesn't, you know, first, uh, I'm a grumpy traveler, which people say, even though you know and I know that I'm a cheery, hobbit-like, <laughs> smiling, fur-covered creature, just going from place to place. Optimistic, whistling. I do tend to. I, a traveler is always optimistic. I, if you weren't optimistic, why would you travel? And uh, I noticed, uh, and then people said, he's grumpy. He mentions that the Chinese spit all the time. <laughs> oh, really? Well, I always thought, that, that, that is the Chinese national anthem, spitting. <laughs> I mean, every time you hear it, a hoik. I mean, that really is. 
the equivalent of the stars and stripes. And the other thing is that they, that I had, they said, and he's very down on a Chinese authority. He says the Chinese are very cruel and they're cruel to each other and the students and so forth. And so my book, Riding the Iron Rooster, got fairly bad reviews. But that was really like a book. Like Graham Greene went to Mexico and said that they were anti-clerical. Well, that was true. Uh, and people went, didn't like the book. Uh, there are many such examples of a traveler coming back and, said, and saying, this is what I saw. The, the uh, travelers in the 19th century were the, travelers were, this, were the spies of the 19th century. When a traveler came back from a trip, they, they were often uh, interrogated. By, what did you see? Were the people fed? Was there trouble? Were there riots? Were there bread, you know, people lining up for bread? And so on. anyway, I went back. The book got bad reviews. Uh, not bad reviews, but it got sniffy reviews. He doesn't like them. Because the idea at the time was that there were a lot of reforms in China. And uh, this is first time I went, it was 1980. This is 86. Um, you know, President Reagan thinks that um, they're a good trading partner and they're coming in tomorrow. And uh, we're selling them things. And All right. They thought I was a bit overbearing. But I wasn't. I was just reporting what I saw. Then when the... Um, Tiananmen Square massacre occurred, people began saying awful things about the Chinese and nice things about my book. <laughs> so it's just, uh, I, it wasn't premeditated on my part. I was merely describing what I saw. And I was in the unique position of simply sitting for a year on every train that I could take through China. And that's, although it's quite a lot of trouble to go to, it has its it has its compensations. You can read, you can eat, you can walk around, you can learn Chinese. You can, there are lots of things you can do. I mean, for a traveler, it's not a book. It's a life. It's just another year. It's a year in your life. I'm not, I don't have a job. That's, that's, uh, I was just thinking, this is something I'm going to do. Seems like you know, a reasonable way to spend a year. Uh, people have spent you know, years in more disgraceful circumstances than that. But it's very odd to be contradicted. And you're usually uh, contradicted by someone who has an axe to grind, someone who was there before and says it's not really like this. Anyway, it's quite interesting how that kind of news is usually brought by, by someone who is traveling very, very close to the ground, not staying in luxury hotels. That's, those people are isolating you from, from, the, from the country. It's actually deliberately going out of your way to go second class or third class or not spending very much money. In other words, keeping yourself at a certain level of um, so that you can be in touch with uh, the people in the country, so you can meet them, so that you can talk to them. And uh, that is certainly a way of, of drawing a portrait of the country. I think that um, whatever limited way that travel... It's very questionable, the use of the travel book, a, a book that it, uh, someone actually setting out to write a travel book. It's very questionable, the value... Uh, because you could say, I mean, the questionable part is, you could, you, could, you could say, why is this person going to that country? Why is this person going to the country now? And for that length of time, and all these difficult questions, the, all the why questions, well, the answer is simple. The person is going to that country because he likes, the, or she likes the idea of going to that country. There's usually no more um, noble notion of going to a country than the fact that you simply want to go there. You, although people dress it up as a quest, I always want to go there. Most places that I've gone 
or simply because I liked the name, or I saw it in a movie once, or I saw a picture of it, and you know, and I saw bats hanging upside down in the tree. I remember uh, someone mentioned fruit bats in the Pacific, and I really wanted to see the fruit bats of Tonga. They're giant. They call them flying foxes. I always wanted to see the fruit bats, but I didn't go to Tonga to interview the king of Tonga, and who, who by the way, weighs 450 pounds. Although I was sort of curious to know what a 450-pound person looked like. But I wanted to see the fruit bats. I wanted to camp out. I wanted to be on my own. I wanted to pra- uh, I have a kayak. I wanted to paddle from island to island. I wanted to pretend to be Robinson Crusoe and be on an, uh, an uninhabited island. All of these are selfish, self-serving. I want to have some fun. And um, in the course of it, of, of, of doing this, something that seemed like a pleasurable thing to me, not an ordeal, uh, I had a number of experiences that I wrote about. And the, the sum of it was, I suppose, I hope, a kind of portrait of the place, of, of what I came to see as the universe of the Pacific, uh, all the planets, all the galaxies, all the small places. And I, I wondered, seriously, whether they added up to um, a, a region, a place, an ocean, whether there was any connection, I wondered, between Easter Island and Tonga, between Tonga and Hawaii, between Hawaii and Fiji, between New Guinea and New Zealand. I wondered, is there any connection? The answer was yes, yes. There are common uh, problems, there are common, there's a common language. The people in, in, in Easter Island can understand the people in, in Tahiti. The language in Hawaii, is a version of it, is spoken by the Maoris in New Zealand. That there's a common consciousness among the, among the indigenous people in the Pacific, many of them. And that uh, there, are, there are trade routes, there are, uh, there are common problems of, of pollution, of the, the oceans being um, depleted of fish, of uh, you know, uh, nuclear warheads being stored in various places, of nuclear leaks. The, the, the French uh, tests have tested 160 nuclear devices in Mororoa Atoll, and that concerns everyone in the Pacific, and people really care about it. And there are, there are visits made from island to island. So is it a, 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 this gigantic place, this enormous place, actually do, is, a, is a coherent region, with, uh, not, with, uh, not a place that has um, a, a lot of, not, not a lot of isolated planets, but places uh, more a kind of solar system where there's a, 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 a coherence. Um, but I was saying that... that the ideal travel book, to me, is one written by a person with some character, but also uh, uh, someone who really wants to go to the place very much, not a person in search of a book. Anyone with a reasonable education and um, a reasonably good writing style can go to a place like Albania or um, Panama or a benighted place that's not written about a lot and learn the language and write about it and have a book. And that's happen, that happens a lot. In fact, there are more of those books now than perhaps at any other time in history, simply because we have so many educated people and so, on, so many people who have nothing to write about uh, and who have the money uh, to get to these places. It's really not difficult. Albania used to be completely off the map. Albania um, uh, is now approachable. From, all you do is go to Bari in Italy, a lovely city, on the, on the Adriatic, get a ferry, it's an overnighter, 
costs about $25 or $30. And the next morning, you're in Duras, Albania, and you can ramble around and observe the people and stay there as long as you like, I guess. Uh, I haven't been to Albania, but I was curious to know how you could get there. And I was in Bari recently and inquired, so that's how you get to Albania. But the, there are, now that the, the, uh, the, uh, the Maoist government of Albania, it was the last Maoist government outside of China, now that it's fallen, um, the, uh, the, it's the government of Enver Hoxha, Anyone can go there, and it's, because not, not many people do go there, it's a place to write about. The value of it is that maybe something will be that someone will bring back some kind of message, depending on the character, as I say, of, of the person. That that some news will be brought back, greater or lesser, according to um, according to the, the person who goes. We hear a lot about Somalia. There are American troops in Somalia now. A group of Marines have just been told yesterday that they have to stay on a, um, a battleship anchored off Mogadishu in case something goes wrong in Somalia. What do we know about Somalia? That the people are hungry, that there are warlords, that uh, um, Americans have been killed there trying to keep the peace, and that there's a state of anarchy. That's about it. But I assure you that if there were if there was a travel writer in Somalia who had spent a year or two there, or maybe even six or eight months there, but a period of time in, in Somalia, they would have found out a lot more than what the diplomatic initiatives were or what the chances of Mohammed Farah Idid succeeding. They would find out if they were in, um, in a, even a remote village of Somalia because I was in Somalia in, in the 60s, that, that first the people are either Catholic or Muslim. And the Catholics tend to be Italian-speaking. The, 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 the Catholic Somalis were taught by Italian missionaries. And it's quite strange to hear Somalis speaking Italian. Not strange, but it's sort of uh, this kind of uh, cognitive dissonance, as they say, about, about hearing it. Uh, so they, uh, the other thing is, is the, was the Odyssey written by one person? Was it recited by one person? How could anyone encompass the whole, you know, how could someone recite the Odyssey over a period of, uh, of, of nights? Or, which is, it's mentioned in the Odyssey how uh, uh, it's, a lyre is strummed and, and it's recited. Most people think it's much too long. Then they also think that... Um, they come across certain lines like the rosy-fingered dawn or the, or the, uh, the wine-dark sea, and they think, why do those keep repeating? It's as though it's a kind of chant. But could it be? In Somalia, there are odysseys. There are people reciting the equivalent of the odyssey all the time. That the epic poem in Somalia is a normal um, a, a form of of telling stories, of recounting tales, and that there are Homer, Homer-type people, Homers, we could call them, uh, uh, who are uh, uh, lyric poets, who can remember thousands and thousands of lines. Because they're illiterate, because this, these poems have not been written down, they sit in villages, surrounded by people, recounting these legendary tales of the exploits of uh, uh, the, the, the myths and legends of Somalia. 
Well, you don't hear about that, do you? You don't hear about that in, uh, in, uh, in, in the course of events. You hear about malnutrition and fighting and shelling and um, you know, the Holiday Inn was shelled and diplomatic maneuvers. But the, the, the culture of the place, I assure you, is, is not only interesting, but it's, it's, it's almost unique. And uh, although there are, there are other examples about it, so it's, it's not unique, but, there, but it's, it's, it's an example of, uh, of a place where where poetry was recited, thousands of lines, as they say, and uh, at a time. That's something that a traveler discovers. And, of course, anthropologists, anthropologists discover it too. But travelers discover it. And I think that that's one of the values of a travel book, is that, that, that these strange little sidelights on a society, what the people eat, the sounds, the smells of a place, the look of a place, the literature of a place, the, the, the oral tradition of a place, all of those become part and parcel of the, of, of the, tra- of the, very, the, of the valuable travel book, of the travel book where the, uh, the person is penetrating uh, the society. You don't find them in journalism. You don't find it in the sound bites of, of CNN. But you do find it in the dull-seeming, um, rather clumsy, uh, low-tech travel book. There's a, as I started by saying, there's a sense in which all true books are books of travel. And I can say that in my work, if I hadn't traveled, I wouldn't have had a great deal to write about. I would have been writing about Medford High School or Medford, Massachusetts, but I would have run out of that pretty fast. It was, uh, William Faulkner wrote about uh, Mississippi his whole life, just what he called a postage stamp-sized uh, place of Yoktapetofa County. So all his books, The Sound and the Fury, Absalom, Absalom, As I Lie Dying, all of those are set in this small place. I couldn't do that. I didn't have as strong a sense of place. Medford, Massachusetts was a place I was trying to escape from, not write about. I never thought it was interesting. I was trying to get away from my family. I thought, if I stay here, I'll never write anything. I've got to leave. I've got to to liberate myself. Then and, and find out who I am and what I can do. I have to get away. Faulkner obviously didn't feel a need to do that. Many people have not felt a need to do that. Sinclair Lewis always, well, not always, but Sinclair Lewis's best books were about Minnesota and, and where, the place that he grew up in. So they're based more or less Elmer Gantry, Main Street, Babbitt. They're all, it's, it's Zenith and it's, it's a milieu that he understood. I didn't have that. I needed to leave. I needed to make discoveries of my, uh, of my own. And I needed very much to have someone not breathing down my neck, my parents, my uh, contemporaries. I needed to go away. I didn't want people to ask me questions like, how will you support your family? What are you going to do about money? Uh, when are you going to get a real job? That sort of thing. I, didn't, I needed to leave. And so I, I did. In the course of doing that, in the course of, of leaving, I discovered landscapes. It served me well, and I think that in the, in the 50s and early 60s, a lot of books re- were written about the world as a wasteland. If you think back, many books, the, the Samuel Beckett, Harold Pinter plays, uh, uh, the, the, the kind of uh, the, the burnt-out feeling that people had after the Second World War, which is the world, the world is a wasteland. The T.S. Eliot wasteland image was very, very strong after the war. 
I didn't feel it myself. I just heard people talking about it. I never felt it. I always thought, the world is a large, complex, and interesting place to me. I want to see it. I was interested in the exoticism of the world. Not that the world is a battlefield that's been burnt black and, uh, and, and futile, but that it's, a, that it's, a big, it's a large and interesting place. So when you read the bitter reflections of Beckett, or T.S. Eliot, or whoever, uh, people that, that when, when, when I was in college, these books were taught, and we were taught that the world is like this. I never believed it. I never believed it for a minute. I thought, I want to leave, and I want to see what there is. And so that the sense of place within me and in my work has always been very strong, the wish to it. I, I hope that I've achieved a strong sense of place. And I think without realizing it, I was writing travel books even when I was writing fiction because I believed that all books needed to be set somewhere, some particular place, at some particular time. And so that they became not only historical documents, but that they became part of the world, that, that, of, that, of the real world, of a time and a place, so that they had not only a history, but also a geography. And from the earliest books that I wrote, which were written after the Peace Corps in, in Africa, until the most recent one, which, are, uh, which is coming, which is out actually at the moment, this one, Milroy the Magician, which had its origin, strangely, strangely, when I was writing about the Pacific and believing that I was only writing about the Pacific with no ulterior motive, just paddling my kayak from island to island, and um, going, I, I, it's a collapsible kayak, I would get to, uh, you know, folding kayak, I would get to a place like Tonga, set it up, paddle somewhere, paddle back, take it to another group of islands, paddle somewhere, I took it to Easter Island, I paddled around Easter Island, just, just one little rock way down there, paddled around. And to see the place, it was an occasion, people would say, oh, that's an interesting boat, can I use your paddle? I loaned them my paddle, I, and... Uh, I borrowed their paddle, and I lived in the village and so forth. When I was doing that, I didn't realize that something else was happening, that as I was writing this travel book about the Pacific, I was also, something was germinating in my mind. I was in the island, uh, uh, I was in the Trobriand Islands of New, off the northeast coast of New Guinea. The Trobriand Islands, does it, is it familiar to you, the Trobriand Islands? It was written about by... Uh, a man named Malinowski. He wrote a book called uh, The Argonauts of the Western Pacific and a, one with a, um, a title that all of you will remember after this, The Sexual Life of Savages, about the love life of the people on the Trobriand Islands. And uh, kind of a strange title, but it's a, actually a good book because uh, the people have a sort of Sadie Hawkins Day on the uh, Trobriands once a year during the Yam Festival. And I was there during the M Festival when groups of women attacked men and dragged them down and ripped their clothes off and scratched them and sat on them and, uh, and then sent the man home with all scratches and bruises and so forth. Men, they would totally humiliate uh, the men, which is the object of, of rape, I guess, that it's a kind of a physical assault and humiliation, and the men would, have to, would be known as um, the, uh, the man who, who got raped. Anyway, I, w I was there, and I saw... A I was staying in a village where the people had lovely teeth. 
They had beautiful white teeth. And um, everyone else in the Trobriand Islands had very, very bad teeth. They, they chewed betel nut, which is, uh, made the teeth very red. It took, and they mixed it with lime that, that they got from the uh, coral reef. And, they, and it took the enamel off their teeth, and they ended up with very stumpy teeth and very unpleasant. And, but this village, Kaisika village on Keleuna Island, off a bit. And I, I, I uh, ingratiated myself to these people by just showing up one day in a very bad storm. The outrigger canoes were all inshore because it was such a bad storm, but I had my kayak, and you know, I have, they're very seaworthy kayak, so I could go across this channel more easily than they could in their outrigger. Anyway, um, so I showed up and they said, you were out in that water. That's great. You're a good navigator. So I stayed there. And I wondered, why do these people have such lovely teeth? One day we were out spearfishing, and they spearfish by diving immense distances down, 20 feet down, 25, maybe 30 feet, really, really deeply in the water. And um, they could hold their breath for a long time. And they had spears, and they would, uh, it would be on the equivalent of a reef, just uh, tumbled rocks. And I, I looked up and I saw a shark. It was quite a big seven or eight foot shark just drifting through the water, sort of sinking down in the direction of my um, diving companion. So I swam back to the boat and got into the boat very quickly without making the shark think that I looked good to eat. But I just sort of, I, you know, you can't thrash around too much. I was very careful to just get back very carefully. And um, when they, the others came up, I said, did you, did you see the shark down there? They said, oh, yes, yeah. The, the, they said there were three sharks. There was the big one, and then there were two sharks behind it. So I said, why didn't you kill it? They said, oh, no, 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 no. We don't kill sharks. We don't eat sharks. I said, well, aren't they dangerous? No, no, no. They said, they're all right. You just shout at them and they go away. And I said, well, why don't you... They do. They, you shout at the shark. Just yell hard at the, underwater at the shark, and the shark gets confused and, and leaves. That is actually a, a tried and true method. Lots of people in the Pacific told me that. Just yell at them. Yell very... Just yell. And, um, and be very stern with them. And they, it works in most cases. Actually, I should say that, that uh, I never met anyone who had a problem with sharks. People died of malaria, of leprosy, of bacterial infections, but they didn't die of shark bites, not very often anyway. It's a fact that more people in the world are killed by pigs than by sharks. That's a fact. The... Um, so I said, why didn't, I'm somewhat <laughs> ruining this story, why didn't, you, why didn't you kill the shark? They said, we don't eat sharks. Why don't you eat sharks? We're Seventh-day Adventists, they said. And that also explained why their teeth were beautiful, because they said in Leviticus chapter 11, it says you must not eat fish without scales, you shouldn't eat um, uh, uh, swans, eagles, lizards, snakes, rabbits. I said, are there any rabbits here? And they said, no. That's convenient. You don't have to eat those. And, uh, and they listed all the animals, the prohibited animals in the book of Leviticus. Deuteronomy also mentions them. And I thought, isn't this amazing? Isn't this amazing? Because these people are Christian, Seventh-day Adventists, they have nice teeth. They're also robust. They can hold their breath a long time. Because they read the Bible, they can hold their breath they're healthy, they have lovely teeth, they don't eat turtles, they, 
they just, because of this verse, because of the Mosaic law, these people are healthy. Now, the fact is that the people in the Trobriand Islands only live to the age of 43 or 44. The, a 50-year-old is totally over the hill. They didn't believe that I was 50. They thought, when I told them, they said, no, 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 you're lying. Because a 50-year-old is, is no longer in the land of the living for them. But it struck me that vegetarianism, which is what they practice, accounted for their health, and, and that the Bible was the reason for their vegetarianism. It's not unusual to see, and, and that these people are like Adam before the fall, Adam and Eve before the fall. It's, like, it's as though they didn't have original sin. They do die young there, but because of bacterial infections, not because of what they eat. And seeing this connection between food and faith, I then, and also the, and the landscape of the place, of seeing, I began to think of this book. And although I was very, very far away from my desk, the, and I was working on a book about traveling through the Pacific, it struck me that it was wonderful. That the, and reading the Bible there, under the tutelage of these people in Kaisiga village, that the Bible is full of food, that it's, it's full of good food. Not only the food that we shouldn't eat, which is the Seventh-day Adventists uh, don't eat the food that's prohibited in, in, in Leviticus, but the Bible's full of wonderful food, milk and honey, the mentions of the food, pottage, lentils, loaves and fishes, stews, lots of honeycomb, broiled fish and a honey. When Christ rises from the de- is raised from the dead, he eats a broiled fish and a honeycomb. Bread, there's a lot of bread in the Bible. There's a lot of, uh, as they say, high-fiber food that eat no manner of fat is mentioned in the Bible. Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 9, has a, a recipe for bread. With, but it's not just, you know, wonder bread. It's a wonderful um, high-fiber, nutritious bread. And there are lots of references. You remember David Koresh was in, in, in Waco, and he had a certain a kind of sexual agenda. He, he thought the mentions in Proverbs of the oil of gladness was kind of had, had a sexual connotation, the oil of gladness. The man in my book, Milroy, the magician, says, no, 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 the oil of gladness is low in cholesterol. <laughs> so I, I thought that it, it is striking that if you turn on the television, you find programs about body shaping, aerobics, and then you, you say, I'm not interested in aerobics or body shaping, you switch and you get the hour of power prayer line, or you get someone praying, or an evangelist, usually a very unhealthy-looking evangelist. <laughs> Should you trust an evangelist that can't do 50 push-ups? If that evangelist has read the, the Old Testament, shouldn't he be able to do, you know, chin himself? Because he, he should have read the book of Leviticus. So it's surprising that they're not healthier than they are, that they're just looking for money, and that they look really uh, so out of shape. Shouldn't it be possible to conflate those two notions, the idea of health and the idea of food? I, that's what I found out in travel. And so this, the idea of this book, which is not a frivolous idea, uh, came about, because I began to eat that food myself. And the more I ate, the more I was convinced that there was an idea behind it, that the idea of food. I didn't find this out in Medford, Massachusetts, or even in the state. I had to go to New Guinea to be inspired in this way. 
And I think, although this is a very, very oblique notion, I started writing about the travel book, but the travel, travel and the travel book has always informed me and served me well in, in writing fiction. So this book is the fruit of travel, but not just of travel, also of reading, also of writing. When I wrote The Mosquito Coast, I wanted to write about a preacher. Some of you might have read The Mosquito Coast or seen the movie. The, the, the man in that book I always thought was going to be a preacher. I thought he was going to be an evangelist. I thought he was going to go to, this, go to Central America and, and bring the word, you know, the message, the text for today. I didn't realize that he was going to be a scientist uh, full of Yankee ingenuity, but then it occurred to me that he needed something. He needed to bring some kind of, um, of invention with him. And so uh, this is the converse of that. This is a, a man who is kind of anti-science, who's saying faith is what matters. Regularity. We have to make, uh, not reject America, but make America regular. Revitalize America. We set out on a particular journey to find a particular thing, not realizing that the thing that we find that, the, that is, is not the thing that will serve us, that, that a journey the quest for the grail, the, the quest to find a particular place, to write about whatever, Albania, the Pacific, the Taj Mahal or South America. Although we're setting out to go to that place, we're taking all our past with us. And if our mind, if, if your mind is completely open, if, you're, if you have a kind of sense of, of, li- of a liberated mind, or, or uh, if you are open-minded, you receive notions that serve you very well. And I think it's a wonderful thing. When, when, um, when Robert Louis Stevenson says, all true books are travel books, I think that's what he's saying, that they have landscape, ideas, a sense of liberation and enlightenment, and something that will serve us beyond the mere journey, but they actually inform us, send us forward, and inspire us. And I actually think that that's the notion, that, that's the notion that we should carry with us in travel is that looking for inspiration, not looking for a subject for a, for a book, but looking for anything. And sometimes uh, the fruit of it is something like this. Not just a travel book, but the additional bonus, a novel too. Thank you very much for being a patient audience. That was Paul Theroux from Portland Arts and Lectures in 1994. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Our show is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more from the Archive Project, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori for Radio and Podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy and the entire literary arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.